How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. We're delighted to have Dr. George Barn on the program today. He's written more than 50 books that address cultural trends, leadership, spiritual development, church dynamics. He sold more books based on survey research to matters of faith than any author in American history. He's been on the faculty and staff of many universities and seminaries. He's currently at Phoenix, as we're talking right now on this broadcast. He graduated summa cum laude from Boston College. He's earned two master degrees from Rutgers University, has his doctorate from Dallas Baptist University. We live right next door to DBU for many years. George's wife, Nancy, have three adopted daughters and one grandchild. He likes reading, music, rooting for the Yankees. Come on, George. Listen, I was born in Manhattan. Cut me some slack here, okay? <laughs> and relaxing on the beach. All right. So, George, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, You'll you're, you're, you're the frog in the kettle guy. That's how most American Christians know you, right? Uh, you know, I used to think that, but it depends on what segment of the community you're in, apparently. I also wrote a book called Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions, and so a lot of children's pastors and, and people who work with children know me from that. I've done a lot of work in the worldview area. That's currently my focus. And a lot of people know me from that. So it, it depends on what you're interested in, mm-hmm. I guess. What first, just out of curiosity, got you interested in doing this kind of research, George? You know, people ask me how I get started in this. And, and the weird thing is, I, I believe if you look back far enough, you would see that it's because I loved baseball cards. You know, all my friends love the pictures of the players taking a swing or throwing a pitch. I love the back of the cards with all those little tiny numbers. You know, I started memorizing them after a while. I I knew all the numbers, so I started recalculating them and discovered (laughs) some errors, contacted the top company, told them about the errors, never heard from them again. But, um, you know, I I think that's kind of what got me into numbers. And ever since then, I've, I've been numerically inclined. But... I actually started in the political realm, managing campaigns, and decided I didn't want to be a campaign manager, but I liked the adrenaline and, and, and the impact of politics, so I decided to focus on the speech writing and the polling. And from that, things evolved into a number of different areas, including me eventually accepting Christ and then deciding to use my skills to try to serve his church. Well, I'm glad you do the work that you do, and a lot of us benefit from your research uh, over the decades. Uh, I do want to talk primarily about your newest work, but I want to go back and talk a bit, if you don't mind, about your 2018 study you did. And it was published in, in various outlets, your official publishing, and we'll have this information in the show notes for our friends. But you did the State of the Bible survey. So I'll just read some of the highlights, and we can jump in. Half of Americans are Bible users. The Bible use is likely among boomers, city dwellers, and Southerners. The use of technology and the Bible has grown steadily. And I'm going to stop there for just a moment. I had a, a guy on a while back had done some research for his PhD on retention with technology and Bible reading and study. 
Uh, have, have you given any uh, thought or time to that? Because I argue that, you know, the tactile aspect of this book and reading and writing in the margin and taking notes is different than a tablet or a phone for the Bible. Yeah, I have not done research into that. What we've tended to focus on is what do people do when they interact with the Bible? And we have found that those people who believe they need to study it have a very different set of applications than those who believe that it's important that they read it. And so that to me, that's an important distinction. You know, and most research looks at, do you read the Bible? And that's good. That's important to know. But I think there's a deeper level of do you actually take the time to study it and figure out what to do with it? And and that, I think, is where we're really falling short in America. One of your uh, bar graphs, or pie graphs, rather, about curiosity in the Bible, I'm curious about what the Bible says. And this was disappointing and telling. 29% agreed with your statement, 19 disagreed, 15 somewhat, and 37 somewhat agree. What's that tell us, George? Well, again, with those kind of scaled questions, one of the things we've learned over time is that it's most helpful to look at the extremes. And so when you do that there, you're looking at, what was it, like one out of five people who said that, yeah, they, they really care what the Bible talks about, what it says, what it teaches. And then you could ask the follow-up question about, do you care enough to actually apply it? And you're going to cut that number by more than half again. So... The numbers are really small. I think the church in America takes a lot for granted, you know, local churches. They assume that people own Bibles, they read Bibles, they study Bibles, they believe the Bible, they're trying to implement the Bible. And the reality is that's not the case. We've kind of discouraged them from even bringing Bibles to most church events and, you know, instead we'll throw a bunch of verses up on a big screen and, or, or, you know, tell them, well, look in your phone if you want. And I, I think that's been done to our detriment. In your research and study, people that read the Bible daily, do you recall some of those numbers? Well, they were really low, and they're dropping every year. We continue to track that. And what we do find is that the people who read the Bible every day are the ones who, not surprisingly, are most serious about their faith. But the fact that they are older and they are declining in numbers is something that, again, ought to be sending a wake-up call to church leaders that somehow we're not connecting people to God's Word. You know, our current research here at Arizona Christian University, where I work, uh, we have something called the Cultural Research Center, and we've started the American Worldview Inventory that we do every year. And as part of that, we, of course, look at what people do in their interaction with the Bible. And one of the things that we're discovering is that fewer and fewer people believe that the Bible is true, fewer and fewer believe that it's relevant, fewer and fewer believe that it's something that is applicable to a person's life. And, you know, if I were in the marketing realm for years, we worked with Disney and Visa and banks and all kinds of places. And when we would have a meeting about research we'd done, they'd say, you know, all right, so what do we do about it? And I don't hear the church saying, wow, what do we do about it? And I say, oh, well, that's too bad. We'll just keep doing what we've been doing. Well, clearly that's not working. And I think the other research that we and others have been doing is suggesting that we've got new generations of individuals who think differently, who have a different basis for making decisions, i.e. their worldview 
is very different. When we look at millennials, for instance, only 4% of them have a biblical worldview. You look at the latter half of that one generation, and it drops down to 2%. So it's clearly moving in the wrong direction. The, the older a person is, the more likely they are to have a biblical worldview. But it doesn't matter what generation you are, very few have a biblical worldview. And so that's a major problem. So you bring this up, and this, of course, is the primary topic we want to touch on, the American Worldview Inventory 2021. You just completed this, and I'm going to read just a couple of the points here uh, from your overview, and then I'd like to drill down on some of these. It says, uh, it reveals the worldview Americans are most likely to draw from is a relatively new and obscure philosophy uh, of life known as the moralistic therapeutic Deism. Now, I think I understand what that means, but explain that for the rest of us. <laughs> a moralistic therapeutic deism. So I believe in a moral God as long as it helps me from a therapy, I mean my, and there is this God. Am I close? Uh, close. Yeah, the moralistic part of it actually has to do with people want to see themselves as being good. Most Americans believe that people are basically good. They believe that they themselves are definitely good. And as a result of that, God will favor them. When they die, they'll go to heaven because they're good. The deism part has to do with, yes, they do believe that there is a God, but they do not believe that he's involved in their lives. They believe that he created the world, he created human life, but then he fled the scene. And so he's relying on us to take care of each other, to be good, but his goal for us essentially is to be happy. That's the highest end of man as, as far as MTD adherents are, are concerned. Uh, you know, you got to feel good about yourself. You have to do what advances your own causes, your own needs, your own desires and pleasures. There are no absolute moral truths that you need to worry about in this perspective. And overall, moralistic therapy or deism puts very limited demands on people because God's no longer part of the scene. So you do what you need to do to make things work so that you're happy. Anecdotally, a, a friend of mine's great Christian couple, a great Christian family, one of their adult daughters decided to move in with their boyfriend, and they weren't raising their arms, screaming, yelling about it. They weren't mad at her. They just said, honey, don't you think this is wrong and Christ would not want you to do this? And her response was, well, uh, I talked to Jesus about this and we have an agreement. Yeah, and I thought how much more illustrative of MTD, or you know, I call it the, I mean my Christianity, with yeah. my worldview, and what God does for me. Yeah, and I, I think you know when I talk about this with people, they say, "Well, what do you make of it?" And I say, "Well, to me, it's fake Christianity, because people put some Christiany kinds of elements into this, and therefore they think, okay, I've got the Christian part covered." Now I've, I've got to take care of the me part. So there's a lot of deception that goes on in a worldview like this, where you take an it's kind of like the Bible says, you take an element of truth and an element of a lie, and that's how Satan works. And that's what I think a lot of this worldview, which is particularly common among our younger adults and teenagers and middle schoolers, this is a very popular point of view with them. Keep in mind that when we talk with millennials, people who right now are 18 to 36 years of age, 57% of them consider themselves to be Christian. 
And yet, this would be the worldview, moralistic therapeutic deism, that they draw from the most. And actually, biblical theism, or a biblical worldview, is the worldview of the eight that we studied that they're least likely to draw from. And so you've got a group that pretty much considers itself to be Christian, but that's because even the word Christian in our culture today has become a genericized term. It's kind of like Kleenex or Xerox. You know, those are brand names, and, and yet they connote a category. And so Christian or Christianity in our culture also now is something that connotes a category, the category of religious. It goes back again to your older studies, but this idea of 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview and that percentage, that single digit. Again, help us understand, you and I would have a nomenclature, what a biblical worldview means. Help us out for those who might not be familiar with that phrase. Yeah, and it wouldn't be surprising that most of your listeners would not be familiar with it because our research shows that most Americans have no idea what a worldview is, much less a biblical worldview. But really, a worldview is something that every one of us has. We need a worldview to get through the day because your worldview is the intellectual, spiritual, and emotional filter through which you experience and interpret and respond to the world. And so it essentially is your personal decision-making filter. Every decision that you make in life goes through your worldview. It's made because of your worldview. And what we've found over the 30-some years I've been studying this is that people's worldview begins developing at 15 to 18 months of age and is fully formed by the age of 13 in most cases. Between 13 and the mid to late 20s, we work on that worldview, not as a full-time occupation, but, you know, we kind of dance around with it. And we try to refine it. We figure out how to articulate it. We work on the implementation of it. But it's really formed by the age of 13. One longitudinal study I had done when I was still at the Barney Group, we discovered that most Americans will die believing almost all the same things that they believed at the age of 13. Very little changes. Now, the Holy Spirit can come in at any time and change anybody radically, You know, and I would be an example of that. I didn't come to Christ until later in life, you know, when I was in grad school. And, you know, the first few years after I accepted Christ, things radically changed. Mm -hmm. So I, I know firsthand that, yes, that can happen. But as a sociologist who works with data, you know, many hours every day, I can tell you that on average, it doesn't change for most people. And so those early years are critically important in the shaping of the worldview And the church, in essence, these days is absent in that developmental process. So let me interrupt you and ask, why has the church so moved away from, you know, I'm an old school, I'm a dinosaur. I teach the book of a Bible. I'm a verse-by-verse guy. I'm big on context, historical, biblical, theological. Uh, Let's look at what it means in the context that it was written in, and how do we apply it to our lives? As Hendricks oft said, we never make the Bible relevant. The Bible is relevant. And so that was our theological worldview, was we begin with how God's revealed himself through human history and his word and the personal work of Jesus Christ. And then the life of faith and growth is to conform ourselves, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12, to be more like, I I tell people, are you any more like Jesus Christ and less like your sinful self? 
And if I'm not a year from now, uh, then I'm not growing. And we teach that from the pulpit, but that's a pretty rare thing to find these days. It, it sure is. And, you know, as we look at our younger generations, what we find is that, well, at least the research is showing us that the dominant influences are arts and entertainment, news media, government laws and policies, schools, and to a lesser extent, family. But the local church has virtually no discernible influence on the thinking and therefore life choices of young people in America today. So what that says to me is either the church needs to change its approach to ministering to people, or we've got to change those other institutions that are having dramatic influence on the worldview of Americans, or ideally we do both of the above. We get the church involved, and part of its involvement is impacting those cultural institutions that do have a dramatic influence. And, you know, as, as a pastor for most of my 40 years, I often feel the pressure of every um, scholar, researcher, uh, radio broadcaster historically telling me the pastor needs to do this, the church needs to do that, you know, if churches would do X. And so on the one hand, I'm like, yes, we want to teach a biblical worldview. On the other hand, it's, I can't do all these things. I, I don't mind mentioning a name here. I don't think he would mind. But I was with James Dobson many years ago in an, a, an event in D.C. sitting beside him. And I said, Dr. Dobson, all the things you impose on a pastor of a church, I would only do what Dr. James Dobson told me to do. You know, <laughs> he laughed. And I said, we're trying to lead people and shepherd them and disciple them and help them grow in faith and get their marriages on track. And how do you parent your kids and teenagers? And you throw all these other big issues on me. And then I think of a small church. You can't do those things, George. No human being can do it. Uh, I had done a study a number of years ago about pastors. We, we used to do a lot of studies with pastors. And one of the things I found is that they were, first of all, probably the single most frustrated occupational group in America because they were driven by a vision of what they were called by God himself to do, and they didn't feel that they were capable of doing it. And so much of that, we've discovered, had to do with the fact that they were being asked to fill a job that no human being could do. We started identifying all the different tasks that pastors were asked to do. And I believe it was 16 different major categorical activities. And then we looked at business leaders, we looked at educational leaders, government leaders, etc. We looked at what they were being asked to do. No other group was being asked to do the range of activities that pastors were expected to be experts at and to do with excellence and to be doing 24-7. So essentially the conclusion that, that we came to is that pastors in our current church model, local church model, are being set up for failure. There's no human being that God gifts in this way. There's no human being that God calls to do all these things. That's the whole idea of the body of Christ, is that you get a group of people who collectively possess all those gifts, collectively are capable of doing that work, but they need to work together as a team, as a family, as a unit, as a church. And that's, I think, what's been lacking in so much of what happens today. We want the paid professional 
to be the expert who does it all, and we're just setting them up for failure. Um, I want to talk about so many things with you, but I want to look at some of these MTD-related things that you have identified. 95% do not consider success in life to be described as consistent obedience to God. 91% do not believe that people are born into sin and need to be saved by Jesus Christ. 88% say they get their primary moral guidance from sources other than the Bible. This is depressing as all get out, George. Well, welcome to my world. Yeah, I, you know. No, you're supposed to have some reportage. No, Michael, it's all going to get better. <laughs> no, you're interpreting that wrong. No, unfortunately, you're interpreting it right. And, you know, I've come to the conclusion that one of the reasons why people have so much anxiety and why depression is so high and why suicide rates are hitting record levels is because there's this internal dissonance cognitive dissonance that we're struggling with, where on the one hand, way, way, way deep inside, we kind of know who God wants us to be. On the other hand, the culture is driving us in a different direction, and that feels good, and because we want to feel good, we're dealing with that. So we're constantly in conflict with ourselves over who we should be, how we should act, what the fruit of our lives should be. And I believe that until we come to grips with that conflict, we're just going to be a nation tearing ourselves apart. Where, where do these voices get? You know, there was a time when the pastor, I was talking to Dr. Philip Carey, who's a delightful uh, theologian, philosophical, historical professor up in, in the East. And we were talking about there was a day when the pastor, the priest in the Catholic or Episcopal Church, they were the most educated guy in town. And people went to them because they were trained and scholarly and they read books and they you know, could read Greek and Hebrew and maybe French. And uh, they were revered. And now it's almost a punchline to be a preacher. And we've also diminished our theological education. In my not-so-humble opinion, uh, seminaries aren't teaching people to be expositors anymore. They're teaching them all these MA degrees that are fine degrees, but they're not equipping people to handle Scripture and lead people to Christ and to maturity, what are the voices that have supplanted a biblical theological worldview from children's ministries to youth groups, student ministries, college ministries, and so forth? Well, if you look, for instance, at young people, knowing that our worldview develops when we're very young, we've got to look at, okay, well then who are the voices that are feeding into that? And, of course, biblically, it's supposed to be the parents. That's their chief job. That is their single most important responsibility for the duration of their life. You can go to Deuteronomy 6, various passages in Proverbs, etc. However, what we find is that most parents today say that they feel overwhelmed with what it takes to raise children. And so the best thing that they can do for their children is to find good, qualified individuals out in the community who in various dimensions of the child's life will be the expert who coaches them or tutors them or, or leads them into growth. And so, you know, they look for the sports coaches. They look for the, the arts coaches or, or teachers or tutors. They look for youth pastors, children's ministers who are going to raise their kids spiritually they hand all that over to other people and don't worry about it. And a lot of this comes back to this notion that Hillary Clinton was so big on of it takes a village. village. 
And uh, no, it doesn't. It takes two parents who are married to each other under God's leadership who conceive those children in order to raise them up to honor God. I mean, that's the commitment. And uh, we no longer have parents who recognize that as the commitment. And so instead what happens is you've got kids who by the age of 18 have spent on average more than 32,000 hours exposed to media content. And that's more time than they spend doing anything else other than sleeping. And in some cases with some kids, it's more than that. So, yeah, I, I think we've abdicated the most important thing that we can do, which is to recognize that young life is being molded, it's being shaped, and it's critical that the church take the lead in that. And yet what we do in most churches, we've discovered, is that we simply use children as bait. And the idea is, boy, if we can make children happy, then they're going to tell their parents, who are the individuals we really want in the church, because they can think and they have influence and they have money and blah, blah, blah. And so if we can make the kids happy, they'll tell their parents, yeah, I like it there. Let's go back. And the parents will return. And so the the whole system is off. We were uh, talking with some of our leaders at our church um, that we have here in Tennessee, and we said, and just to your point, said there were there are two kinds of churches: those that the children want to go back to, and those where the parents take the children. And um, it's a little bit simplistic, but it, it to your point. And again, I, I just find it remarkable. Um, I've been involved with churches so many years that, yeah, you know, I mean, they're going to do a series on. And again, I got nothing against Enneagram. I'm not out to throw it under the bus. I mean, I think those tools have a place, but they don't have a place in a pulpit. You know, you got 30 to 40 minutes a week where that person might open his or her Bible if you tell them to bring a Bible to church anymore. And then you're going to talk about Black Lives Matter or LGBTQA or whatever, you know, the the jour topic is. And I'm like, there's a place for that. But if you're going to open the scripture and sing worship songs to the God of the universe, it seems to me you ought to hear from his word. I'm, that's why I say I'm a dinosaur. I'm just, I'm prattling, George, forgive me. Let's go back well, to your, well, your, go ahead. You know, and, and, and I would bring it back to a basic dictum by which I operate, which is you get what you measure. And, and so we look at churches across the country. I know from the research we've been doing the last few years with the senior pastors of Protestant churches, across the country. We ask them, do you believe that your church is effective in ministry? More than eight out of 10 of them say, oh yeah, okay. And then the follow-up how question do you measure is, it? how do you know that? And what we find is that there are five things that most churches measure. Let me guess. How many people show attendance, up? Attendance, yeah. uh, budget, and yeah. Uh, facility. <laughs> yeah. How many people show up, how much money they raise, how many programs they offer, how many staff they've hired, and how much square footage they've built out. Those are the five measures that most churches look at, which is great. You know, I'm a measurement guy. I'm glad they're measuring stuff, but you get what you measure. You got to measure the right stuff. And what they're measuring is, are we on the path to becoming a large church, as opposed to, are we on the path to developing disciples? There's nothing in any of those five measures that Jesus died for. You know, discipleship, you know, how do you measure that? People say, you can't measure that. Baloney. You know, you go back to the book of John, and Jesus talked three times about, you'll be my disciples if, you know, in John 8, he talked about if 
you obey my principles. In John 13, he talked about if you love one another. And in John 15, you'll be my disciples if you produce much fruit. It's like, okay, well, there's a starting point. Let's start to measure those things. That's not impossible. Why don't you take a look at that? That's going to drop that 80% number or 88%. actually. Yeah, but that's okay. We got to know where we're at realistically. I, I think pastors, again, because they are expected to do so many things. And again, I, I speak as a 64-year-old man. I have to be careful because I don't think pastors 30 and down have anywhere the worldview of a church that I had. But I, I think our thing was, how do I measure growth? And because, you know, you can measure, and the ABCs are important, and tenants building cash tell you something. But at the end of the day, if you're not seeing people's life change, their marriages get better, people share Christ. Not that we're going to try and see X come to Christ, but are you sharing your faith? Are you telling people your story, how you came to know Jesus Christ? That's not an impossible thing to do. And you know better than me, uh, you do that, two things happen. It reinforces your own faith, and God just might use that story of yours to lead someone else to Christ. I mean, that's not hard to measure, right? No, but it's fascinating. Uh, you know, the whole idea behind First Peter 3.15 of always being prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within you, most Christians that we've been interviewing struggle with, first of all, can they do that? Do they know how? And, and secondly, are they willing? And in a culture like this today, cancel culture, uh, woke culture, they're, they're not really interested in doing that. And so basically we are censoring ourselves by our refusal to share with people the most significant thing that's ever happened in our life which is that Jesus forgave us and Jesus came to live in us and Jesus is propelling us forward. And so, yeah, again, going back to what I said before about the anxiety, the depression, all that, yeah, that's part of that internal fight that we're wrestling with is that God's wanting to use us. We are his hands and feet here. And, you know, we're, we're, we're bucking like a horse in the pen trying to get out saying, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want people to to challenge me, to question me, to not like me. It's like, get over it. <laughs> yeah. As I tell people, uh, I'm not a good counselor. If you come to me and you say you're yeah. depressed, I'll say, don't be next question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what uh, else you got? <laughs> moralistic therapeutism, a uh, couple other points here, um, among racial and ethnic segments, Hispanics parentheses, more than 40% whom are Catholic parentheses, showed the greatest alignment with MTD, and a majority of them, 52%, drawing heavily or moderately from MTD perspectives. A significant age gap was evident in the research as those under 50 were more than twice as likely as the 50-plus to find MTD appealing. Well, and, and I'll add on to that, people under 35 are five times more likely to turn to a moralistic, therapeutic, deistic perspective than they are to turn to a biblical worldview to guide their decision-making. So, you know, the other big picture issue here is that as we've looked at all these competing worldviews that people are choosing from, what we discovered is that actually the dominant worldview in America is syncretism which isn't a worldview at all. 
all it is is you saying, well, I, I don't want to be bound by the perspectives of any particular worldview, whether it's postmodernism, secular ecumenism, Eastern mysticism, biblical theism, whatever it may be. I just want to pick and choose the things that make me yeah. feel good, that make me comfortable, that help me to belong to a group of people, all these things that really are our goals in life. And so we're not even, as an American population, willing to embrace a particular worldview. We're so selfish, we're so self-absorbed that we feel like, nah, I'm just going to take what I want, just like it's a candy store, and we're just picking different pieces of candy and throwing it in our bag and walking out the door. I refer to it as junkyard theology. We just pick and choose what we want and make our own theology, which is... So again, I asked this and you answered it, but I want you to take another run at it. What's happened? I didn't answer it right. No, no, but for me, because I'm I'm a learner, George. I'm not an I'm a, a expert like you. I'm a learner. Oh, I, yeah. That's how I'm wired. We we see what's happened to culture, and, and and you were one of the early guys in the Christian vocabulary to talk about you know builders and boomers and Gen X and all this type of thing. And now we're in what next gen or Z or Y? I can't keep up. And we maybe pejoratively use those labels unkindly sometimes, but there's a lot of truth in them as, as a product of a builder. Uh, although I'm a boomer, I was much more a builder than I was a boomer because the way I was raised work ethic, you get there early, you stay late, you pick up a broom, if nothing to do. You go talk to the boss, you're respectful. You look people in the eye. I mean, my parents didn't have a racial bone in their body. You treat everyone the same. And boy, if there was any hint of that, they came down on us. And you respect that person. And it wasn't a negotiation. And I respect and love my parents. They were far from perfect. But as we look at the next two, three, four decades, George, this I, me, my has transplanted all of that. And, uh, back to this young woman's illustration of, you know, the Lord and I, we have a, a arrangement on that, you know, I mean, where did we go from God made man in our image to man made God in his image and made a junkyard theology religion? I know you've answered it, but help me again. What's happened to us culturally and in the context of the local church to get to this sad place? Well, Mike, when you spend 12 hours a day letting people in New York and Hollywood through their movies and TV programs and music and magazines and everything else, and now with all the online input, when you let them tell you what reality is and how to interpret that reality, you see, I think this is one of the things that the local church missed, is that sometimes we would teach people something out of the scriptures and then we'd leave it hanging. And so people in the seats are there saying, but wait a minute, what does that look like? What do I do with that? And so to finish off the teaching by saying, here's what Christ leads us to do. Here's how we address that in our culture. Here's what it should look like as the Christian community. I think we've done a poor job of that. One of the sets of studies that we've done in the last two election cycles has looked at conservative Christians and their perspective on the election in the world. And one of the things that we found from them, which was really eye-opening, 
was that a huge majority of them said, you know what, I don't know how to think biblically about the issues. I'm dying for my pastor to tell me not who to vote for, but how to teach me how to think biblically about immigration or about poverty or about you know, Israel, about anything that's on the table in, in popular discussion right now. And as a consequence of pastors saying, no, 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 we wash ourselves of that dirty politics. Really? Where do you think America came from? You know, let's look at the early pastors. They were the community leaders. They were the mayors. They were the city council people. They were the ones who were at the meetings of the community when it came together and gave their perspective about here's what we believe, here's what we are going to do. And people would follow them because they were leaders. And so it's imperative that today our pastors, most of whom, by the way, by our research, are not actually called and gifted as leaders. They're called and gifted as teachers, and that's all right. That's good. We need that. But there's a big difference between being a teacher and a leader. We need Christian leaders to help Christian individuals to be thinking through what do we believe, why do we believe it, what are we going to do with it in every context in our culture. That's our task as believers, is to infect the culture with God's love and wisdom and mercy and goodness in every way possible. And if a pastor can begin to implant those things, not to tell people everything, but to be asking the right questions, to be pushing the right buttons, to get people to spend the time to do that. That's a good pastor. And I think one of the things I try to do, because most pastors, I think, are their own worst critics. We hate watching ourselves. We hate listening to ourselves. I mean, if you like listening to yourself and watching yourself, there's a bigger problem. But most pastors hate it. And I continue to ask and answer my own teaching and ministry is, how do I lead people to think biblically? And you can't tell them. You've got to lead them. I mean, Jesus told 38 chronicle parables that we have, and no two are the same, and they're all remarkable in their context and what he's shaping. And we're still the most, the clearest one he gave us on the soils, we're still debating what it means. (laughs) But I find it striking that it's not that hard to ask the question. I, I lost friends over the last election and the vitriol. And I said, you got to set personality aside and look at policy because there's Mm -hmm. never going to be a personality. We're all going to like, well, there's some that are more likable, but you can't cross both those chasms with one individual and what you're, and sure they don't help themselves very often. That being said, as a Christian leader, I'm not trying to Christianize a dominion theology I'm trying to help people think critically and biblically and be able to make a decision and smile at the future. It it doesn't seem that hard in some respects, George, but your observation about the media, and and I would add to that, I was using Illustration Sunday on this newest phone I was forced to get, literally. It has a thing on your battery consumption. And I was digging around in the setting, and it actually tells you what you're consuming on your phone with battery power. And 47% of my battery power was on Instagram, 
which is the only social media I have on this device. I don't have them on any of my platforms anymore except computer for work for in context. And that was a personal choice. And I was shocked that 47% of my battery time was on Instagram. Now, some of that's usage, but some of that's what they're doing to my phone, right? Yeah, so I deleted Instagram. I told yeah. that story Sunday morning. You should see my email box this morning. I was 56%. I was 49%. I didn't have to tell them to take Instagram off their phone. I didn't have to shame them or embarrass them for thumbing through pictures for an hour. I just made the observation. I discovered something, and I thought, this is wrong. I'm going to stop it from draining my battery. That wasn't a theological discussion, but it was. Because yeah. what, what am I spending my time and what's pulling me? TikTok's one you haven't mentioned, but TikTok, I think, is a very dangerous platform for our kids. But that's another thing. Give us some help, George. We got, I want to honor your time. Give us some help. Talk to the parent for a moment. Talk to men and women who are maybe afraid to take a stand culturally, even in their sphere of influence with their neighborhood or their friends. Give us some shoe leather encouragement on knowing the data is not good. But you and I were called to make disciples of all nations. We're called to love God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We're called to be light. Well, you know, I mean, there are a few things to think about. Number one is that you got to figure out who you're going to serve. And so either you're going to serve God or you're not. I'm at the point now where I believe that's really black and white. You're either going to do it or you're not. So make your choice and get on with it. If you're not going to serve him, don't pretend to be a Christian. Just move on. Realize that you've, you've given up the ghost and that that's where you're going to plant your flag. Good luck to you. You know, if you are a believer and you realize that you've been called to honor God, recognize every single decision you make either honors or dishonors God. That too is black and white. And so if you want to come down on the side of, I want my life to really honor God, start thinking about all the different dimensions of your life and evaluating how you're doing in those, your relationships, your occupational activities, your religious activities, your familial activities, uh, you know, how you interact with the government. I mean, everything that you can think of, think about Am I doing something that I really think this is what the Bible teaches? This is what honors God. This is how I can serve him and advance his kingdom. And if not, start thinking about, hmm, gosh, how am I going to change that? And there are going to be some painful choices that you have to make. But remember that the Bible never promised that being a follower of Christ was going to be a painless experience. People have had it a lot tougher than you and me. And so... You know, we are part of what I believe the, the scriptures would call the remnant of God. And by that, what I mean is that when you look at how God changed cultures, he uses his people to do that. He doesn't do a miracle and just wipe out all the bad guys and make everything good. He does it through us, those of us who are passionate about him, committed to him, who want, when we stand before him at the end of time, for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so the, the whole idea of the remnant is when God changes the culture, he doesn't wait till he has a majority to get it done. He doesn't wait until his candidate gets elected into office. He does it through this handful of people, relatively speaking, who are sold out to him and willing 
to do whatever it takes to do what is right. And so that's a badge of honor. I mean, that's something to move your life toward. That's something that's viable to die for. And so figure out what really matters to you. Do you want to please the world? Do you want to please God? If you want to please God, make the tough choices. But in order to make the tough choices, you have to be able to think like Jesus would think in any given situation, which means going back and spending enough time in God's word to know what Jesus would have done. And uh, ultimately, together, we as the body will be used by God to do great things. You can be used by God to do great things. So don't give it up thinking, oh, but I'm just one person. Every person that we read about in the Bible was just one person. And yet we read about them today over 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years later because they were one person who was willing to stand up for God and his ways. We are no different than those individuals. We're no dumber. We're no smarter. We're no stronger. We're no weaker. We're just people. And that's what God works through, people who love him and want to serve him. I pray that you'll be one of them. Dr. George Barna, the founder of the Cultural Research Center, there's plenty of information about him online, but we'll make it easy for you in the show notes. You can find links there to his latest studies, the latest projects that are all available for you to take a look at. George, thanks for your time. Thanks for your ministry and uh, blessings on your on your class there in Arizona. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. God bless you. Thanks, George. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.